0: shining a light on the issue of domestic violence. The United Nations study out this week finds domestic violence is one of the most common killers of women around the world. Fears are growing at domestic violence shelters. Domestic violence experts in our
1: top story. Well, a domestic violence situation quickly turned into an assault. The
0: federal government calls it a pervasive problem that frequently goes undetected.
1: We're talking about the courage
0: that it takes to come forward as a victim.
1: Hey, everyone. Uh, it is July. We haven't done a Community Voices episode in a couple of weeks. Uh, and so it's great that we have a fantastic episode for you with Holly Harris. She works for Deschutes County. Um, and a little more about her she is the program manager for Deschutes County Health Services. She oversees all crisis services, including the Deschutes County Stabilization Center. So we spent a good amount of time talking about that because it just opened last month. Uh, it's been in the works um, for five and a half years, I think she says. So, it's a fantastic uh, insight that she has into um, what she says, the intersection of criminal justice system and behavioral health. Uh, She has great things to say about how innovative Deschutes County is in this regard. Um, And yeah, I I just really enjoyed it. So, I think you will too. Um, Couple things about um, just mental health, just to keep in mind. Uh, We mentioned a couple of these stats, but this is from uh, Nami. National Alliance on Mental Illness. One in five adults in the US experience mental illness. One in 25 experience serious mental illness. 19% of US adults with mental illness also have a substance use disorder. So, just some stats to kind of wrap your mind around. Um, this one's also probably pertinent. One in eight of all visits to US emergency departments are related to mental and substance abuse disorders. So in in my background, um, the nonprofits I've worked for, I've seen this firsthand, just what can be a revolving door of someone um, who's really unable uh, in their current state to take care of themselves. And who are you gonna call? The police. Um, And uh, I won't spoil anything. I I just wanna go into our conversation, but hear it for yourself. Uh, Without further ado, Holly Harris.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Deschutes County Stabilization Center, The Stabilization Center serves children and adults who are in need of mental health crisis supports and stabilization. We welcome individuals to walk in who are experiencing a mental health crisis, or they can be referred by law enforcement or other community partners. Most individuals who come to the Stabilization Center receive a crisis assessment in one of our five intake rooms. The purpose of this is to assess for risk and determine each individual's needs. We offer connection to additional community resources, as well as appointments for ongoing mental health treatment and medication when appropriate. An additional service we offer for those who qualify is Adult Crisis Respite. This is a voluntary five-recliner short-term respite unit for adults experiencing a mental health crisis. This area provides a quiet and peaceful environment for individuals to stabilize and get connected to the appropriate community resources. To qualify for short-term respite, a crisis assessment is conducted and a determination will be made for admission to respite. If the clinician and the individual determine additional time is needed to stabilize, they may be admitted to the respite unit if the following criteria are met. The person is voluntary and willing to participate in the admission process. They are in need of mental health services and not aggressive or assaultive. And they are mobile, able to communicate, and not known to have a major infection or disease in the communicable stage. Other services that are housed at the Stabilization Center include civil commitment investigations, case management, peer support, forensic diversion, mobile crisis assessment team, co-responder program, and crisis walk-in.
1: I did want to, to kick us off by reading your why are you passionate about what you do statement. Is that all right?
0: That is fine.
1: Good. And then you could jump right in and tie that into um, your career and your background. Um, So here we go. The criminal criminal, that's a hard word. The criminalization (laughs) of mental illness that has happened in this country over the last 60 years is one of the biggest challenges we face as a society. I've been committed to this issue for most of my career and feel strongly we can and must do better. So why don't you provide your backstory, your personal background, And then tee us up to to why you feel so passionate about that.
0: Sure. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't, um, going into my career, that's not something that I thought that I was going to necessarily be passionate about. It just evolved over time as I um, learned, come to understand the, the issue. Um, I started my career. I knew I always wanted to be a therapist. I wanted to work in mental health, so I knew that much. Um, and then my career just took me in in these unique paths. I actually worked at a women's shelter at one point for domestic violence, so I definitely right. appreciate the mission of saving grace and support it wholeheartedly. Um, and then I ended up switching um, paths a little bit and ending up being the director of a juvenile probation department at a time in Texas when we were really looking to do something different with our youth instead of locking them up in state institutions for pretty minor stuff at the time. Um, And they wanted kind of that mental health uh, background to come in and and work with our local department. So um, that's where it began. I really started to see, particularly with our youth, uh, many of the mental health challenges, behavioral health disorders that were contributing to some of their behaviors and ending them up in this criminal justice um, dynamic and pattern, and and I it, I really started to see it evolve, and I saw their parents also um, in a similar situation, um, and so when I moved to Oregon, I got kind of back into the mental health side of things, um, and I just really come to appreciate the the challenge we're, we're facing, and and really dug into how we got here as a as a society, um, and. And I really, I mean, it kind of began back in the in the '50s with the deinstitutionalization of mental illness, which was a really good thing. Um, you know, we historically had locked people up in asylums for most of their life, um, which was not a great way to manage mental illness. Um, and then there was this mass kind of deinstitutionalization that happened. Um, but but along with that comes unintended consequences, right? Um, you know, money didn't follow it like it needed to. It it wasn't done necessarily in the most thoughtful way. Um, and people ended up in our communities without the resources they needed. So you, so I've watched this happen even here locally where I, in my opinion, Deschutes County does things incredibly well from both the law enforcement side of things as well as the behavioral health side of things and, we're, and we still see it. So I think about communities that don't have the resources Deschutes County has or, or the progressive approach um, and it's even worse in those communities, but it, it is across the board happening. So yeah. these individuals are let, uh, end up in our communities um, with severe mental illness, um, and then by no fault of their own, they're ending up getting charged with low-level crimes because there's really no other place for them to go other than our jails. Um, they don't meet criteria for necessarily hospitalization because that's a really, really high bar. Um, and so they're in this gap, but their they're, um, community members are you know, not happy with that person kind of being in their, in their space with, you know, commit, maybe committing some of these kind of nuisance crimes, criminal trespass, disorderly conduct, and so law enforcement really is left holding the bag trying to figure out what to do with it, and, and yeah. by no fault of their own, they end up having no choice but to charge them with these crimes, um, and end up in our jails. Um, and, you know, the, the bad part about also them ending up in jail for you know, something that's really not, um, not their fault and um, they're born with these mental illnesses, but they end up in jail and they can't uh, participate in the criminal justice process. And so that's um, so then they end up in jail, you know, often two, three times longer than a person without a mental illness that's in there for those same low level crimes. <laughs> and it, so it's, it clogs up our systems. Um, it's a huge drain on resources. It's a travesty for the person that's actually going through it and their family watching them decompensate in the jail. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've just really gotten really passionate about this topic, um, and I know that we have to do something different, and and uh, we have to help support our law enforcement so they're not ending up with these terrible choices of you know leaving them in the community or taking them to jail.
1: Yeah, man, my, my mind is already racing because I before working for Saving Grace, I worked for an a organization in California similar to Bethlehem Inn, Shepherd's House. So we had the drug and alcohol recovery. We had um, we had homeless shelters and, and kitchens for daily meals. And so that's, that's how I, you know, cut my teeth on learning firsthand, um, mental illness, but also what's, what, how did that stem from substance abuse? Did that stem from trauma? Um, and so, so yeah, I'm, I'm having all kinds of flashback memories of individuals that I, you know, connected with and, and met and it's definitely not, um, It's not easy. It's not very cut and dry. Uh, It's not fair to law enforcement like you were referencing at all um, to to watch them try to navigate such different uh, situations. So in in Deschutes County, can you kind of paint a very like um, a very typical situation?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, situations that we kind of encounter all the time, um, are individuals with, say, a psychotic disorder, so somebody with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, something that's causing them to see things that other people aren't seeing, hear things that other people aren't hearing, uh, and they're acting out bizarrely, as you can imagine, if you were hearing things (laughs) that other people weren't hearing, you might act bizarrely as well, and so they're acting out in the community and sometimes have a belief that um, maybe they own a house that isn't theirs. They firmly believe that that is real for them. Um, and so you can imagine the problems that might cause. So they're maybe revisiting this house over and over again because they believe they own it. Law enforcement's obviously getting called out. Can't just let the person, you know, enter a house that's not theirs or be around a house that's not theirs. So what What does law enforcement do? Our, our bar for Oregon to get somebody involuntarily hospitalized against their will is one of the highest in the country, in my opinion. Um, and so unless they're doing something that's truly imminently danger to themselves or someone else, which being around a property that's not yours is not gonna meet that criteria. Law enforcement can't take you to the hospital. Um, so what do you do? So so what's the other option? In Deschutes County, we're fortunate because we have things like a mobile crisis team that can come out and assess and try to divert that person from the criminal justice system. We now have things like the stabilization center where law enforcement could voluntarily bring that person over here and then we would manage that and start working with them. Um, uh, but prior to those things and in other communities, they would take them to jail. And then it ends up in that process that I just discussed. So we have, we're have we really fortunate here in Deschutes County because for the last, gosh, 15, 16 years, we've had a mobile crisis team. Um, and they actually didn't even become required in Oregon until like two years ago. So we've been well ahead of the curve and doing this type of work for a very long time. And because of that, we've really made a dent in the, the number of people that end up in our jail for strictly mental health related reasons. Um, still happens from time to time, for sure, um, but you know, we really work hard at it and have for a long time. We also are very fortunate that we have a clinician embedded at the Bend Police Department. We were able to get a grant last year, and the cool thing about that is that person rides in the car with law enforcement officers, so you're not only building relationships and helping understand each other's culture and our work um, both ways. Uh, But you're actually in real time responding to calls so that uh, you get the right people at the scene to really be able to truly divert them from uh, further entering the criminal justice system. So we have a variety of things in place. In addition, we've been doing what's called CIT training. It's crisis intervention team training. It's an international model to help train law enforcement how to interact with someone experiencing a mental health disorder differently than, say, they're trained in the academy you don't come into a situation like that, guns a-blazing, full force, like, you know, you, you you come into a situation like that very differently. And if you do that, you can really reduce use of force um, and you can have a better outcome for all. Um, and and so we've been doing that training, I think, since about 2012. Wow. Um, and it's a 40-hour training that our law enforcement agencies have committed to sending their officers through. And, and so I think, my point in all this is really is that it's, it's not a one thing that's going to fix this issue. It is a multi-pronged approach that, um, requires, um, investment. Um, and it requires partnerships, um, across a number of agencies to make this type of type of work, um, successful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it brings up a couple, couple thoughts, a couple questions. Um, When, luckily, I haven't seen anything like this in in Bend or in in our area, but when my family and I went to Portland for the first time last summer, we were going to Powell's Books and um, we're at a red light and there's cars, you know, in front of us, we're all stopped. And my wife, you know, gets my attention. Her eyes are really big and she's pointing. And there is a man who is touching himself inappropriately. um, And our three children are in the car who are young. And I mean, that would be traumatizing for anyone, you know, to to see that in broad daylight. And there's just people walking around, walking right by him and there's cars, everyone's going about their business. And to me, that's such a stain on where we're at right now as a society, because as much as we don't want to just mass institutionalize, I'm curious for your perspective on how in the world does it give that individual any dignity um, what is their foundation? What are their resources to to not be there doing that? you know i don 't know what the rest of their day look like or or who 's already tried to work with them or any of that and again i haven 't seen anything that that uh, extreme here, but what w- where 's the balance of you clearly are not able to take care of yourself. This is very undignifying, <clears throat> and here are the resources that won't be forced on you but are available what where where can we recommend that individual find help
0: yeah that's that's the tough one right there that's exactly and and believe me we do have incidents like that here um we have uh we have the same but maybe just on a little bit um smaller we definitely see the types of cases that they see um as well And I think when I talk about a multi-pronged approach, it's not always just about resources. Sometimes it's about legislative change related to the bar that is set Mm -hmm. to hospitalize people because my team in particular sees this so often that things have to get so bad. They have to hurt somebody, hurt themselves, cross that line in order for us to actually, you know, put them in a hospital and force some resources on them or force some help on them. And I, you know, it's a tricky conversation because you have organizations like Disability Rights Oregon who do great work and are really there advocating for client rights. And then you have on the other side of things where we are seeing because we are unable to hospitalize people when we need to, they're ending up in the criminal justice system. And that's mm-hmm. not right either. And where's the dignity in all of this for the for the individual? Mm-hmm. So in my personal opinion, I feel like there really needs to be a balance. Like we, we need to be able to hospitalize people when they reach um, kind of that level you're talking about of like, you know, out in public at risk for arrest because they're doing something inappropriate. That's, you know, and, and, you know, you have to think about the consequences of arrest on a person's life. It's the same as when somebody without mental illness doesn't gets an arrest record, housing becomes an issue, jobs become an issue. And then it Mm -hmm. just further pushes them down in in society um, to be able to overcome this. And so I do think there needs to be a a look, um, particularly in Oregon at, at uh, and there has been a lot. There's there's a group of people really working towards lowering that bar a little bit. We don't want to low, I think, you know, with all this stuff, there's always a pendulum swing, right? So the institutionalization of mental illness was really high at one point, a lot of terrible things happened in asylums back in the, you know, 40s and 50s. Right. We Don't want that. But then we don't need the pendulum swing so far the other way that now we can't get people the help that they need, because that's not right either. So right. there's a middle ground in there somewhere that we need to get to quickly.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, that's so good to hear. Cause it, it, it's not just the, cause it feels like you can get stuck in the conversations like, um, about semantics or terminology, you know, and it's like, Hey, I'm trying to help this individual who, uh, isn't in their right mind and they're walking around barefoot until their feet are bleeding, you know, like, can we talk about the term homeless later and how that is, not dignifying, you know, like I'm trying to get the homeless person attention and help and and, and a clear mind. Um, So I don't know where I was going with that. But um,
0: no, it's so true, though. I mean, this is this is the hardest part of the the work that we do on on my team is, is wanting to just help a person. um, But having this red tape and bureaucracy and larger decisions that aren't really feeling applicable in the moment we just want to get this person help and we want to help them before they have to be at a state where it's it's so far down the line that now they've um they've really destroyed their lives in some ways either hurt themselves so bad that they're going to have long-lasting permanent damage from some type of something that they've done to themselves or someone Mm -hmm. else um Mm -hmm. but our 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 system is not proactive it's very reactive um, and sure. so that's why great things like stabilization center are, are, are critical to communities um, and, and having a resource for officers to be able to come and, draw and and get support to manage this and have a place for individuals to stay that are sort of in that gray area. They, they don't meet hospital level criteria, really don't want them in jail. So where can they come? And, it's, and, and we've created a space for for that population.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk more about that. It's a great segue because that's, that's the thing in the news that initially you know, I reached out to you was the, the, the opening of the stabilization center. So I know that's been a long time in the works um, and some, some backstory on it um, from the article you sent me from the source. Calls to Bend Police Department involving people who were allegedly mentally ill increased by 172% um, from 2010 to 2017 so that that's kind of the backstory of the need, right? and so it, where where in that time frame did the stabilization center idea um come to life?
0: Yeah, so it actually started about five and a half years ago, um and just so you know that statistic is now two hundred percent um as of twenty twenty it's gone up two hundred percent so um yeah, so not not going down wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, the project really started five and a half years ago. Um, with the sheriff coming, he came set an appointment with health services and he walked in and he just sat down with us and said, How can we work together? My jail is quickly becoming a mental health facility. Wow. Um and, and and this it's not right. We, we've got to do something different. We've got to work together. Um and I think that's such a critical point um, is that if you don't have that relationship with your law enforcement, you need to get it. <laughs> um because I mean, that is how a project like this it's even possible. I mean, the fact that we had a law enforcement agency, or particularly our sheriff, and you know, actually all of ours, um, who care enough about this issue to say, "Look, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to I'm going to go work with those behavioral health people." Um, where historically that has not really been how we've operated. We've been over here doing our thing; they're over there doing their thing. Um, but our worlds are colliding at this point, and we have got to do it together. So that project started then, and and really, um, you know, over the five and a half years we've been working on this, we've we've done a lot of things. We didn't go into this um, haphazardly. I, I personally toured 17 different facilities in five different states. Wow. Um, I, will, I was hoping that we were going to find uh, a place that was like or see a model that worked perfectly and just do that, but it doesn't work that way. Um, unfortunately, these are, these are new innovative types of projects. They're progressive, so what you're seeing is communities doing them all in a little bit of different ways that meet their needs for their community. So I got lots of great ideas about how it could work. But then we came back here and we said, how is this going to work for our community? Where are our gaps? Um, and so it was vetted through a number of stakeholders. And, um, and the model we really came up with was that we wanted a, a 24-7 crisis stabilization center with 23-hour respite and at some point in the future a sober station. We, we felt that model um, would address a number of gaps that we were seeing in our community. Um, and so we're not totally there yet. Um, and, and it may be a few years before we get the full scope of things or even longer because, um, funding for this project has been a challenge. So we're, you know, we are pretty much in what I call phase one. We are able to operate seven days a week until nine. Um, we're not, we have money to operate seven days a week until nine, but because of COVID, we've had to kind of phase into that as well. So, um, starting Monday, we will be five days a week until nine, but then, um, hopefully by the fall be seven days a week until nine and then i'm continuing to look for the additional funding to get us to that 24 7 mark um i have a grant application in right now that i'm hoping to hear about friday we get that it will be a two-year time frame of operating 24 7 but again it's competitive grant application it ends in two years and then what yeah. um and so it's uh and i'm not even willing to talk about the sober station and, and the plan for that until i get stable 24 7 funding because. Operate a sober station is another million dollar jump because you have to have a higher level of medical staffing to support that, and so that people are safe. Um, and so, you know, it's it's not an easy undertaking, um, but but we've got here. We're, we're here. We're open. We have a building. It's beautiful. It's serving a lot of people already, and we've only been open a month. Um, and so we'll get we'll get there. It's just it's um, these projects are are not easy because often you're having to look for grant funding and and you know other investments to, to get these projects off the ground and um, that's that's not always an easy thing to do
1: sure and would the I'm just curious is the sober station will that uh, allow for you're talking about medical staff would that be a medical detox possibility no, then?
0: It would not be a medical detox we have a detox facility in this community in Redmond um, it, we need we need more capacity quite frankly but you know we do have one and we keep them very busy. The sober station is a nice idea because the detox is, if you think sober stations are expensive, detox facilities are really expensive um, because they do actually administer medications and things to help people withdraw safely. We don't want to get into that withdrawal type of space with the sober station. We really want to give people enough space to just sober up so they don't go to jail and they don't go to the emergency room just to sober up. And then once they're sober enough, then we have the services here to be able to try to capture that window of opportunity talk about ongoing treatment services, maybe detox if that's appropriate, um, whatever the case may be. But um, that's the thing that's missing in both jails and hospitals is that they can go there and sober up, but there's not that uh, follow-up and aftercare and support um, uh, in those places.
1: Yeah, okay, good. Thanks for clarifying that. That's good to know that that's, at least in Redmond, even if it is, um, needs to be bigger. Um, do you want to touch on it all? Uh, and we, we could totally skip over it, but I thought it was really interesting. So in that source article you sent me from November of last year, uh, mentions on a national level, Oregon ranked dead last in a 2018 study by mental health America, comparing the state's high prevalence of, uh, high prevalence of mental illness with low rates of access to care. But Harris, that's you, believes that locally, the community's progressive services for those with severe mental illness may serve as a model for the rest of Oregon's, uh, Oregon's, Oregon, where's my mind today? Uh, So that was alarming. I I almost didn't believe it. I went and looked at that site um, and saw Oregon dead last on the list. Would you like to touch on that at all? Sure.
0: I mean, I, it, I I didn't believe it either when I first saw it because I, I moved here from Texas and and I honestly, I, I struggle with the mental health system in Texas and how it operated, at least in my community where I was from. um And it may have changed since I moved here eight years ago. But I thought, wow, Oregon's really progressive. But I think what I was seeing is, is that Deschutes County is really progressive. Mm. And I don't really have enough um, knowledge or expertise to how it's working in other parts of the state other than to see the statistics. Um, and what I will just say about that is you know, so much of Oregon is rural um, and, and everywhere in our rural communities. They don't have enough funding um, or staffing um, or all of these resources that I talk about here today. These, you know, primarily um, it, uh, support Bend. Um, you know, they they do support the whole county. We, we definitely our mobile team goes out to the whole county, but it also takes my mobile team, you know, 45 minutes to get out to Lapine not quite as helpful as when a Ben PD officer calls us and we're there in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so you see those types of disparities happening within our rural communities. And I, and I think that's probably contributing to that number. Um, Also, I know a number of other communities um, privatized their, their mental health treatment. And I I don't know what impacts that has had. I mean, I think in the tri-county region, we have best care and our other two communities, they do a really phenomenal job. Um I don't know if that's the case across the state um, in terms of in terms of the treatment, but I just know what we're doing here in Deschutes county and and the fact that we've had a mobile team for you know fifteen, sixteen years, fact that we have an embedded clinician, a co-responder program we now have a stabilization center that's going to be open seven days a week till nine. We have a forensic diversion team which um, has consistently since they began, they focus on people with serious mental illness and reducing the recidivism for that population. And we've consistently reduced the recidivism by 60% um, since its inception for the population we've served. So you take all of those things and you talk about being dead last. I I just, I I don't see it within our programs. And so that, that just doesn't resonate with me.
1: One of my kids opened the door, and now the dog's knocking things over. Sorry if you heard that.
0: <laughs> it's good. you know it's pandemic life right now. <laughs>
1: Gosh, um, well that's good to know. I mean it's the the silver lining of if you keep doing the amazing job that you and your team are clearly doing, and Deschutes County is a model. Then the stabilization center with the mobile crisis team with the sheriff's department that is a col- you know a collaborator and a partner. Um, uh, hopefully we can see some, some real improvements, you know, um, for those who got, who have mental illness.
0: Yeah. I just have to believe we will. Um, and, and, and we do, um, we we've seen it, um, with each program we've implemented, we see, a, a you know, progress in the right direction. Um, and I just think, you know, our relationships here are just so incredible. We, I, you know, I can pick up the phone and literally call any one of the police departments, captains, chief, yeah, um, sure if I can, I can call him, and we have enough of a relationship that we can talk through when things didn't go the way we all wanted it to go and why and solve it in the moment and have really honest, transparent conversations about how to do better. And, and that's not the case in every community.
1: Yeah. Well, that's excellent. That makes me feel really good. I think we made a good choice moving here two years ago. What do you think? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, one thing that, that I, I kind of computed is to help me break it down in my mind is so the National um, Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, I guess is, the, is how you say it. Hey, right? NAMI, but I thought people say
0: NAMI, so I don't
1: know. NAMI, <laughs> NAMI? Yep. Yeah. Uh, one in 25 adults in the US experience serious mental Ill- illness. So, I was thinking, okay, if I was at a sold out show at La Schwab Amphitheater, you know, post COVID, um, that means 320. If I did the math right, 320 people have a serious mental illness. I mean, that's like a that's like a huge portion, of, you know, in a section of like representative of you know. And it just made me think, like, you know, how people talk about you never know the battle that everyone's facing, that everyone's going through. It, you know, it's like a it's something at at uh, Pier One or something, a nice little poster with a with a quote about treating everyone kindly because you don't know what what they're going through. And if that stat is is. All um, uh, similar to to where we are in Central Oregon. I mean, that's a big deal to walk around the community and not realize what people are going through. That was a big tee up to ask this. Our first episode, we talked about the stigma of of you know not knowing how to deal with um, especially pandemic related stress or unemployment suddenly or um, trauma that w- that has been unacknowledged that's now compounded by COVID and the stress and unemployment. What and I know that you mentioned this in, in your email to me, but what, how, how can we further break down, destigmatize that the, getting mental health services, going to therapy, um, self-care, what, what advice do you have? What insight do you have?
0: Gosh, I, if I had the magic solution for how to destigmatize mental illness, I, oh, man, that would be amazing. Um, it, is, it is a huge challenge. I mean, I just think we, we just have to educate kids younger and you know in the schools younger uh just like you know of that of that statistic it's like one in four people have you know maybe a not a serious mental illness like kind of a more of a you know depression anxiety those types of things so if you think about that i mean it's it's very likely that someone within your own family will very easily be suffering with some form of mental illness at some point in their life um and we just need to acknowledge that as a society and And educate our youth, educate lay people to talk about it openly, to change the language we use to talk about people with mental illness, to not use terms that are derogatory. Um, I I still hear that pretty regularly, um, you know, throughout the community of just the way we refer to people that are struggling with it. So that type Mm. of language continues the stigma. Nobody wants to be called crazy or whatever the other terms that are used. Um, and, And when we continue to use that language in our society, it really does make a difference. Um, we, we need to make a you know conscious effort to change the way we talk about it. Um, and mm-hmm. we do that by, by modeling it for other people and calling people out when they're using language like that and asking them to, to talk about it differently. Um, I, that's my personal opinion about where we need to start. Um, because I think we still have a long way to go and people, even people who are struggling with their own mental health issues, talking about it, um, in an appropriate way and, and, and seeking out help.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's so true. and I. I think for me, I don't know if you're a big fan of this book, *The Body Keeps the Score*. Oh, have you read this one? Yeah. So this was a giant epiphany for me because I, I it's it really is a trauma lens that it's not just, um, you know, it's like if I had a friend that um, had some kind of serious situation, but then it's five years after that whole thing ended, and you're like, "Geez, get over it," you know, like is right you know, like I'm embarrassed and ashamed to say, but that, you know, those are some of the thoughts like, God, how long has it been? Five, 10 years, like get over it. But I wanted to read this one uh, part. This is just this one sentence here. It says trauma interferes with the proper functioning of brain areas that manage and interpret experience, a robust, robust sense of self, one that allows a person to state confidently, this is what I think, this is what I feel, this is what's going on with me. Depends on a healthy and dynamic interplay among the areas of the brain. So I think it's so helpful when you think about trauma and how it, uh, what it does to us and how it's not just a matter of like willpower of just like, just forget it, just move on, just get over it. Pandemic cat. Um, <laughs> so um, maybe that some of that, and in, in even maybe just that one sentence, someone listening or watching this is going to say, Oh, Oh, that actually makes a ton of sense. And I'm going to call so-and-so and apologize for how I've been really unempathetic or really judgmental about that thing they went through.
0: It's so true. We do, we do a lot of comparative suffering. Um, I, oh, well, I, you know, I know people who've had it way worse than that, and they're not having as hard a time as you are. And, and totally. we really, it's as a society that, that happens across the board. I mean, I think you should do a whole show on uh, trauma-informed care um i don't know if you already have or not but um elizabeth fitzgerald who uh, wor- works for our agency is is phenomenal in, in this work um, but we are doing as an agency um moving towards trauma informed care approach and there's trauma informed oregon and this is a whole model of like exactly what you're talking about everybody um not everybody many people in their life have have gone through things and Um, And to them and their experience, what, how has that shaped their brain? How has that shaped their thinking? Um, And, and how is it shaping kind of the way that they um, move through life? Um, And, and how do we as a society not judge people and not assume things about people? um, Because we're using our own experiences um, to judge that. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. a very complex issue. um, And, uh, but I'm glad that people are starting to focus on it and talk about it.
1: Yeah, me too um well said so i have i mean i have a ton more notes taken down um but let's see it's 12 o'clock so i would like to hit whatever like you know um what what are the lasting what's a lasting message that you want to share with the community either um why do we need more funding don't my taxes pay funding for the stabilization center or or whatever whatever you want to leave as the lasting thought go for it
0: yeah, I mean I, I yeah I think uh, we've touched on a lot of it with in terms of the stigma associated with it but there there is there's no shame in walking into the stabilization center and and receiving help if that's if that's what you need and we're here and what and what we do know is that that, that support like what we offer at the stabilization center and like what we offer in our outpatient behavioral health clinics it works you can dramatically see changes in people's life um and quality of life by just seeking that help and you know I it, it concerns me Um, our suicide rates nationally going, going up and our suicide rates in Oregon being what they are. Um, And knowing that treatment actually does work. It's just that barrier of somebody um, being willing and able to make that step and, and overcome that stigma associated with it. Um, And so I would, I would encourage families um, out there is, you know, again, about the language, the way we choose to talk about this, to make sure your kids and your family members know it's okay to get help for it. And that there is help. Um, and, um, and the stabilization center offers a, a number of services, but one of the, I think, critical things that we offer to the community is, uh, is help in navigating the myriad of resources that are out there and kind of knowing which one is appropriate for you to, to get. Um, we are experts in what is available in our community um, because that's what we need in order to help people move through their... <laughs> Move to
1: crisis. That's
0: <laughs> that's hilarious. No, the that's door great. started
1: closed. So I don't have to get a door <laughs> unlocked. Sorry about that. No problem.
0: That's hilarious. Um, but you know that it's overwhelming for families. So even if they are um, okay with seeking out help, the the barriers that exist in terms of navigating behavioral health treatment and um, all that comes, insurance and all the nuances all right. that that cause oftentimes cause people to say, "Forget it. I, it's, I'm not going to do it." Um, we are here to help with that. We have people that are really experts in that insurance piece and people that are experts in housing resources and food resources and um, you know how to get people set up an organ health plan, all of those things that are gonna help somebody be successful in their treatment. Mm-hmm. So for no other reason, you just need help like figuring all that out. Just that's, that's what we can help do. Um, and there's no shame in that and there's no stigma in that.
1: Yeah. Excellent. I appreciate you really um, nailing that point. I think that's super important. Well, I would, uh, I want to go another hour. Um, maybe we'll, we'll have to do that again, uh, do a part two with you, and reach out to Elizabeth Fitzgerald and see if she wants to talk about trauma informed care and kind of living with that trauma informed lens. So, um, and then I'll, you know, make sure to not have an open door next time.
0: <laughs> no worries. Thank Cat's you so much for having screen. me. Yeah, it's been
1: great. This was great. This was really great. And I'll, I'll be sure to post uh, your website link. Um, we'll have your, your promo video on here. People can get a glimpse of the Stabilization Center. And Holly, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Appreciate it. Yeah,
0: thank you. So nice talking with you.
1: Learn more about us at saving-grace.org. Thanks for joining us.